I invite you now to take a Bible and to open it to the Gospel of John. where We're going to read the concluding portion of chapter 1. This is on page 886, if you're using one of the Bibles that's provided for you there in the pew. And we're going to begin reading in verse 35 to the end of the chapter. Here at Lakeside, we've begun to study this gospel, and we'll go through it chapter by chapter to get a a close-up view of the life and the teaching and then the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ One of the unique features about John and the reason we've titled this series The Love of God is because John is one of the gospel writers who, as he describes all that Jesus did as he was among the earth, he adds to it the description that what we see through his life and his teaching and his death and his resurrection is the truth that God really does love us. And so it's just a few verses from what we're reading now where he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. In the letter that Mark read from, it's there that he says, it's not that we loved God, but that he first loved us and gave himself up for us. And that's how we actually come to know what real love is. Love's a popular term, but it seems to be almost defined in all kinds of ways. And so we want to try to understand what it means through the life and the teaching of Christ. And today's a great opportunity to do that in verses 35 to 51. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. And so they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus and Jesus looked at him and said, so you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. And now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter, and Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. And so Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened, and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And that's where we'll conclude our reading for today. The first thing that we'll notice is the announcement of, again, John, to those who would listen, John the Baptist, that behold, the Lamb of God has come. Last week, when we looked a little bit closer at John the Baptist's life, people were coming to him and asking him, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Are you the prophet who's come? 
And he had to tell people, no, that's not me. Don't, don't put too much expectation on me. That's not what I'm called to do. That's not who I am. And in today's chapter, we're going, he's going out of his way again to remind people, but Jesus is the one. If I'm not the Christ, he is the Christ. And we see that one of his own disciples picks up on the message and says, oh, then I think maybe I should stop following you and I should start following after him. That John believed what he believed enough that as he shared that message, some of the people that were even closest to him decided then to move on from him and to follow after Jesus. And then we see what one of them, Andrew, does when he goes to his own brother. He says, we have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. That Jesus is the one who had been promised to come. He is the Messiah. Messiah or Christ just means anointed one. The one that we'd all been waiting for. And now the announcement is, he's arrived. One of the mistakes when we can make when looking at the life of Jesus is to assume that he is just another type of John the Baptist. Many people have a respectful view of Jesus and an honorable view of him but do not embrace fully what the scriptures teach about him. So I had a, a friend who asked me the question, what, what happens if we don't believe that Jesus really is God in the flesh? If, if that's something that we struggle to believe and we say, you know, I'm not so sure I believe that, what, what else follows? What, what else do we lose if that's the case? My response to him, well, one of the things that quickly would come to my mind is then the idea of him dying on the cross as a substitute would be lost because our faith in that substitute being sufficient for the sins of the world is directly connected to the fact that he is God in the flesh. So he asked me, okay, well, what if you don't believe in substitutionary atonement and that that's not even what happened on the cross? And I said to him, well, then I would just say, it's best to refer to yourself as a Muslim instead of a Christian, which I didn't mean in any negative sense but it, it shocked him a little bit. And I said, if you talk to a faithful Muslim, they have a high view of Jesus and would hold him up with esteem and with honor. But if you were to ask, what don't you believe about Jesus? They would say, well, we don't believe that he was God and we don't believe that God would ever allow him to die on the cross. And so many of us have that kind of a, or it's easy to have a conviction of Jesus is a respectable person, that yes, we should listen to him like we should listen to any wise person. But the way this gospel story is being unfolded for us is to challenge us to consider, no, 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 no. he is not just like John the Baptist or the prophets. He is totally different. He is God come down in the flesh. And that changes then the way we view what he taught and the significance of his death, the significance of his resurrection. That there are things that go together and that to be a Christian is to believe everything that the scriptures say about Jesus. That yes, he was a wise teacher. Yes, he was an honorable man. And yes, we should follow some of that. But that all shifts and has a greater depth to it when we come to embrace that he is in fact God in human form. And where it applies is in the very next thing that's revealed about him. So now, as some people are starting to follow him, he's invited them to come and see. Then Andrew goes to his own 
brother, and then Philip brings him to his brother, Nathaniel, or brings him to Nathaniel and says, we found him who Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nazareth was a small town in the first century. Um, only maybe a few hundred people who lived there, only a, um, maybe a, a mile or two of square space that he would have been from. A very, very ordinary town, which for you and I, we would say, well, none of us gets to choose where we're born. None of us gets to choose who our parents are and where we come from. And so the fact that he's from there doesn't mean all that much except as a historical marker. Except in believing that Jesus is God in the flesh come to us, then he actually did choose where he was born. And he chose in what condition he was born in. And so there's something significant for us to consider in the reality that he would choose in coming to this world to be born in very humble circumstances. In the other gospel writers, we, we kind of get this as they share about Mary and Joseph and we get a little bit more detail. John didn't start there. John started at the beginning of the world and the word was with God and the word was God and all things were made by him. And now he gets to this point of showing to us that this Jesus from Nazareth is also human, had relatives, had family, a place that could be identified, and we get a sense of how even some of the very people who heard it and would have been from that area thought about it. Verse 46, Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I realized that I have a very urban view of Ohio uh, when I was in my master's program and people would tell me where they were from and they would say names of towns, and I would say, oh, is that like in West Virginia or South Carolina or something? And they'd say, no, Ohio. Like, oh, wow, there's a lot of small towns I've never heard of from in Ohio. I have a very Toledo, Columbus, Cincinnati, very urban view of the map of Ohio. Places that they had grown up and raised that I'd never heard of before. Nazareth is that kind of a place. And so the intentionality of Jesus to be born in a small town, to be born among a family that had very little rights in that society it was one of the ways that we as Christians then have come to believe in the dignity and the value and the worth of every single person who's made. We believe that every human life is sacred and important to God and matters to him because God has shown us that. And so if you're someone today who are unsure of where you are in terms of believing in God or believing in who Jesus was, but you would absolutely affirm the human rights of every person, that however they were born, whatever circumstances they were born in, whatever their capabilities are, that they should be treated as sacred. And even if a group of people would decide to mistreat them, we would say, no, that, that's wrong. We can't even as a group of people decide to violate the sacredness of human life. And if you were to ask yourself, well, where does that conviction come from? Why do you believe that every life is sacred, that every life matters, that someone who was born in some place like Nazareth that no one really knows about has just as much dignity and worth as someone born in Jerusalem or someone born in Rome? Because that was not the view of the majority of the world for human history. If you were born in a royal family, then yes, you had dignity and honor and privilege. 
But if you were born to a slave or to a servant, to someone who had no political rights, then your life was valued or devalued in that way. For us as Christians, it all gets flipped upside down when the God who made the world enters into the world in such humble means that nothing about his goodness that we just sang about, nothing about his beauty, nothing about his holiness was diminished by being born in incredibly humbling circumstances and having a mom and a dad who weren't famous in him learning a trade that might not have been viewed as all that significant by his peers. And so believing that Jesus is the Messiah who's come causes us to find significance in the reality that the Messiah who's come is also the Jesus of Nazareth. And it gives us reasons to advocate for the dignity of every human person. And we believe that life is sacred. We believe that the human body is sacred. We believe that human sexuality is sacred. Why? None of that can be found sacred under a microscope or a laboratory. We believe those things as convictions of faith, that there is something different about the way you and I are made up than the very pews you're sitting in. And it's not simply discernible by biology but that the God who made us and created us has given to each and every one of us his own image that elevates us all to a place of dignity and honor and worth. And so for Jesus to come from this incredibly ordinary, out-of-the-way place and to embrace that title, when if we think about, wow, if, if I was had this kind of assignment, I mean, I would choose the best and the brightest and the most glamorous place to come from. Because we often in our sinful hearts, that's how we get our sense of worth and dignity. Where we're from or who chooses to associate with us. And here again is part of the humility of Jesus. Not only to come from this town, but to invite very ordinary people to start to follow him. We know almost nothing about Andrew or Peter or Philip, or Nathaniel, except that they came from similar small towns. Whatever credentials they have or don't have is not a barrier as Jesus invites them to follow after him. And there again, we see that he is the Messiah, revealing himself as loving toward people, and in loving them, treating them all with dignity and respect, inviting them to come alongside of him, and not saying, I only want certain type of people to follow me. I only want people to follow me who'll make me look good. That because he knows who he is and he completely understands his purpose and his mission in the world, he is free to invite all kinds of people to come alongside him in this journey. Nothing is diminished in him being from Nazareth and nothing is diminished from ordinary people coming after him. And so even, you know, when Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip responds and says, come and see. I mean, man, if it was me, I would have said, well, you can just keep that to yourself and, you know, good luck with you for the rest of your life. If you're going to start off by insulting me with where I'm from, 
And so the extraordinary patience and kindness of Christ, not to beat him up over the head with it, but to still extend the invitation to him to come and follow, which is another way in that Jesus shows his love toward us. He invites anyone who would really consider him not to get 100% on the test and then start following him, but to just start following him. To not wait until you think or I think we know it all and have solved it all, but to choose to come alongside and embrace a journey whereby we learn along the way. That's what a discipleship is. In the first century, being a disciple of someone was just choosing to spend the time with them that they could teach you how to do what they do. The, the best picture that we have in a contemporary setting is an apprenticeship. So that if you're, whether it's a medical apprenticeship or a trade apprenticeship, where what you do is not initially, there's a, some basic knowledge, but the assumption is you have a lot to learn. And the best way to learn it is to come along with side, alongside someone and allow them over a period of time to show you how to do what it is that they know how to do. And that increasingly they allow you to do it and they observe you do it and they watch you do it and they empower you to do it. And for each and every one of these people, that's how Jesus is inviting them in. King Herod of his day or other people would start off much more in a, the king has come, bow down to the ground, immediately show respect, loyalty and honor. And Christ comes in an incredibly ordinary way and says, anyone can come after me. Some who already believe that I'm the Messiah and some who are like, I think I'm just along for the ride. I'm trying to figure out where this is going. <laughs> and Christ isn't intimidated by that at all. He said, okay, come, but really come. Come and see, come and look. And so he shows his love for us and that we are invited to be able to follow and learn. And those of us who have the responsibility of being parents of kids, we see this dynamic. Or if I were to ask you, you know, is your love for your kid conditioned on how much they know or understand? Or are you committed to raising them up through every different phase of life they experience and enjoying those different phases along the way? That in your love for them, you desire them to learn more and to understand more and grow in their capacity. For sure. But your love for them is not based on specifically what they can or cannot do. It flows from the fact that they are yours, that you embrace the responsibility over them. And then as they get to observe you and see how you live life, that you have the, the humbling privilege of seeing them develop and grow and mature. It's the gospel writers who are the first in human history to say, God's love is like that. And it's even greater than that. If we have a capacity to love other people in that way, how much more the God who made the world and created us can extend his love for us and come to us and say, come and see, look and learn, follow, He can do that because he knows who he is and he knows why he's come. Human history tells many stories of people who've 
amassed a lot of power, who've demanded exclusively loyalty from others, and only want to interact with people who do only the things they say, never question them, never challenge them. And those are usually people that don't have very healthy lives and never have any meaningful friendships. Christ, by example in how he came and then in how he invited other people and bringing people who immediately could identify him and follow him as Messiah and people who had questions for him along the way reveals the truth of who he is, that he is good, that he can be trusted. And that's what we as Christians believe. And that's the invitation we extend to anyone we know not immediately to get all of the answers right on a test and somehow feel smarter, but to show enough of who Jesus is to invite them along to consider him even more, trusting that he will reveal himself over time. That when it comes to Christ, the reality is not that some people are trying to follow him so well and we haven't seen the fruit of it. No, the reality is some people aren't willing to follow what he said. They might claim it. They might pretend to do it. It might look good if they act a certain way. But those who are choosing to really follow after him are those who are most loving and kind and gracious to other people. And we can see through their own lives the difference that Christ really makes the grace that is extended to other people. I don't know if you had the opportunity to watch the funeral service on Friday for Reverend Billy Graham. If you didn't, it's online and you can watch it, uh, and I would encourage you to. But one of the things they had was every, uh, every one of the kids got to speak for a moment and just share what it was like growing up in the home. They each had three minutes to say something. And they all had great and kind and nice things to say. But one daughter in particular stood up and said, now my story is sort of how much pain I've caused the family and how many times in my life I've made decisions that were not agreed with, that they tried to call me and stop me and say, don't do that. Have you really thought about it? Why are you about to do this again? And I was the one who was doing a number of things to embarrass the family. And she couldn't share it, though she has shared it many, many times in many public settings without tears. But then could testify to the warmth and the embrace of coming home and experiencing the love unconditionally from a father to a daughter. And you can listen to the whole thing and tell me if you have a different impression than I do, but that was the most moving part. <laughs> when you yourself know what you're guilty of or the things you've done that might disqualify you or might in the world's eyes make you now insignificant but to know that the person loves you in spite of all that that you come to understand love at a whole new level the love is sincere for all but it's another level when we can say about our God yeah it's not it isn't about where I come from or what I can contribute to him or if, if I'm if I make him look better by being a part of his team 
No, in fact, it's the opposite. It's that wherever I've come from, whatever my background is, he extends this amazing invitation to follow him and learn from him. Why does he do that? Because he loves me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the revelation of your son to us. That when we wrestle with questions that we have or doubts that we have about you, about life on this world, we have a place that we can come to hear of who you really are. And so we thank you for the gift of your word and how it speaks to our hearts. And that something incredibly ordinary like your son inviting others to follow alongside of him has a way of inviting us into the same dynamic and moving and trusting and loving relationship. And we thank you that you're the living God, that this is not something we simply read about in the past, but something that we feel in the present, that is a choice in front of us to consider you for who you are on your own terms and that you would help us to understand at a deeper level than we have before just how great your love is for us. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.